0: Great. Well, good morning from me, friends, and uh, I'm very pleased to be continuing our series in John's Gospel this morning. If you've got a Bible uh, nearby, just grab it whilst I'm speaking, whilst I'm getting warmed up, because I'd love you to be following along this morning. Last week, Alistair looked at truth from the conversation that Pilate, the Roman governor in Jerusalem, had with Jesus in his trial. This week, we're looking at the second half of Jesus' trial with Pilate, And I want to talk to us this morning about judgment. That can sound like a scary topic and something that doesn't make for a pleasant talk. In fact, when we think about judgment, the picture that might spring to mind is a stern judge in a high box, maybe with a formal wig and flowing robes and our fate hanging in this stern stranger's hands. But that's not the message of scripture. For one, our judge, is not distant and unfriendly, but is the father who wants each of us to be found fully innocent and restored to him, and who paid a painful cost to ensure that we could be. And for another thing, how we are judged is in our hands. Judgment in God's view is less about condemning than it is about separating or sifting and I don't know, maybe this picture will help. If you've been baking and you need to sift something to to separate out the big chunks from the small, or perhaps more likely for me, if you're like a small child with a sand pit and you need to separate the good sand from the chunks of mud and rocks and things, sifting, sifting is an idea of judgment, not condemnation. The story that Jesus told about judgment in Matthew chapter 25 is about people being separated out, like a farmer separates out the sheep from the goats. Actually, in that same chapter, there are two other parables, stories about judgment that Jesus told. One about bridesmaids who had just one job, to keep their lamps ready fueled for a surprise wedding procession that could happen at any time. And another story about a master giving each of his servants some money to invest and then returning to see what they did with it. But in each of these stories, a common thread is that it was on the people. It was what they did themselves in the story, rather than some strange judge coming in and arbitrarily saying, you here, you there. It's our own lives, our own choices that sift, that select, that separate out what sort of relationship we have with God. We sift ourselves. And in case this is helpful, I love a bit of word nerdery, I looked up the Greek word uh, that in our passage we translate as judgment, and it's the word crisis. I find that fascinating. In a crisis, something is revealed that needs to be sorted out. And often how we react in a crisis reveals something important about the state of our heart. It turns out that even the word crisis seems to derive from a very ancient word, meaning sift, separate, reveal out what is in one pile and what's in another. So I offer you that word nerdery, if you like. I thought that was fascinating. On to this morning's passage. Um, I invite you to grab that Bible. If you've got it uh, digital or paper, that's fine. Although paper's really good, isn't it? And uh, turn with me to John chapter 19. The main characters in our passage this morning are, of course, Jesus, the religious leaders. Oh, sorry, Jesus, comma the religious leaders who are representing God's people, uh, Pontius Pilate, who represents the powers and the and the lack of principles of the world. And uh, someone made this observation here last week, but I do sometimes have to work to avoid reading his name as Pontius Pilates. Actually, I once led a youth group session where an absolutely delightful teenage lad who was really new to church completely innocently read the part of Pontius the Pirate. But in fairness, that was a really gripping performance. But uh, without further ado, Lucy is going to read for us our passage this morning. This is John chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. Thank you, friend.
1: Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, here is the man. When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, And according to that law, he ought to die because he has claimed to be the son of God. Now, when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you? and power to crucify you. Jesus answered him, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, here is your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, should I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king, but the emperor. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified.
0: Amen. Thank you, pal. Thank you very much. So the scene set before us is of a trial, certainly not a fair trial, not like we might picture in a courtroom drama where the judge listens carefully to lawyers for both sides and weighs up arguments. Maybe even a jury are given time to consider evidence and weigh up whether the accused is guilty. This is a sham trial, far more about the political agenda of the priests and the political slipperiness of the governor than it is about truth or righteousness. But John records for us, that there is much, much more going on in these goings on than a casual observer might spot at first glance. Through some clues that we'll see this morning, we'll see that this is the judgment of Jesus, except it's not. Jesus, without defending himself, maintains his righteousness, his innocence. No guilt is actually applied to him in this process. No it's not really the judgment of Jesus. This is the judgment of all of us, the judgment of God's people, the judgment of the world, and it doesn't go well for us. Let's zoom in and look at Pilate and the government authorities first. So throughout this trial, Pilate, who is the judge, is trying to avoid condemning Jesus to death because there clearly isn't a legitimate reason to do so. But at the same time, he's trying to avoid upsetting the powerful religious leaders who have already stirred up a mob that might develop into a riot. So track with me. He begins in verse 1. By having Jesus brutally beaten, the soldiers mocking him whilst they take turns to hit him, presumably so that when Pilate brings Jesus back out in front of the crowd again in verse 4, the crowd would be satisfied that,
1: yeah, all right,
0: nice work. You bashed and bruised him as a favour to us, even though we didn't have evidence. Nice one, Pilate. Let's call it a day there. But it doesn't work. To his horror, the crowd press on crucify him. Well, Pilate pushes back a little. Well, not on my law. This is your business. But the religious leaders don't back down and they raise the stakes. In verse seven. Son of God is a religious title that could stir up big trouble from a faithful crowd. It's also a political title, the title that the emperor in Rome claims for himself. So, son of God thrown out in the heat of this moment, far from de-escalating it, this crisis is deepening by the moment. Pilate has a fascinating exchange with Jesus in verses 9 to 11 that I wish we had time for this morning, but we'll skip it for now. Pilate is actively looking to end this and to release Jesus, but then the religious leaders manoeuvre Pilate into a corner. If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. Okay, it's done. Pilate sits down at the judgment seat, and with one last attempt to wriggle out of his responsibility, he orders Jesus' execution. Pilate is focusing on crowd control. He's manoeuvred and pushed into using the state's power to execute an innocent man. He passes a judgment that has nothing to do with guilt and everything to do with politics. He even does so with the unsettling inkling that there really might be something supernaturally special about this man from another kingdom. Matthew's gospel gives us a glimpse that even Pilate's wife, who would be entirely outside of this process, has a supernatural hint that something's wrong. And I'm making Ben work this morning. I think we might have a verse to put up. Thank you, friend. While Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with this innocent man, for today I've suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. The supernatural sense, the, the, the flag going up of, hang on a second, There's something about this man. There's something, there's more to this. There's something behind the scenes. There's awareness, Pilate plows straight on. Politics trumps even that warning sign. I would say that's bad news for Pilate. So let's turn our attention to the religious leaders, whom John sometimes abbreviates and calls the Jews. But when we see that, we have to remember here that that just means God's people. This is not the Jews, you know, as opposed to the Christians or any separation like that. The disciples were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish in terms of the way that he worshipped. This was God's people meeting their Messiah. And so if we call ourselves God's people, then we should read this bearing in mind that this is the us character in this story. Firstly, of course... God's leaders of God's people have let the situation get this bad in the first place. They'd utterly failed to see who Jesus was. They'd chosen to ignore the miracles, resisted his teaching, not spotted the very God that they worshiped. They studied and they represented to his own people. Not a good start, but it gets worse. God's leaders conducted their own sham trial. That was in the previous chapter, John 18. And we see them now trying to manipulate the secular authorities into executing their God that they didn't recognize. In today's passage, we first see God's people's leaders in verse six, and it's not a good look. The bruised and bloody Jesus is presented to them as a peace offering from Pilate to please them, and they are not content with this, but they cry out, crucify him. When Pilate queries this strange insistence on the painful execution, God's leaders reveal just how aware and how blind they are at the same time. Their complaint is that Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God. Surely that claim, plus his teaching, plus his miracles, should have shaken them awake, to see what the Lord was up to. We know that some of them had realized. And yet, here is the rest of them quoting that same claim as the justification to send away this inconvenient man who happened to be their Lord. And then comes the ultimate betrayal, not just of Jesus, we've we've got that, but even of their own idea of God. It begins in verse 12 with a manipulation tactic on Pilate to say, "Ha, Pilate, surely you're subject to the emperor. Surely the emperor is your leader. You can't stand for this man's claim. But it gets far worse far too quickly. And in verse 15, we read, God's people declare that they have no ruler except their secular emperor. We have no king but Caesar. I hate that line. But how absolutely right they were. They're not God's people. They might have the title of God's people. They might dress like God's people. They might speak like God's people, but their interests were utterly worldly, utterly political and self-serving. This is a moment of the leaders of God's people the representatives of god to his people and of his people to him literally rejecting his presence in favor of their power to the point where they don't just turn their back on him but they actively press to have him unjustly executed if it's a mind-bending truth that god would become a man then isn't it also a mind-bending truth that his apparently faithful people would then murder him. So, God's people, his leaders, spectacularly fail to do the right thing, even when face to face with God, the Son himself. Like I said at the beginning, this is the trial of Jesus, except really it's the trial of the world of God's people. And John gives us a couple of hints to show us that that's what's going on. One of those, if you'll flick with me to verse 13, is where John makes a point about the judgment seat. This is the judgment seat at the stone pavement, which in Hebrew is called Gabatha. Only John, of the four gospel writers, focuses on this location quite so pointedly. And remember from what I said a few weeks ago, that John the director is choosing his close-ups carefully to communicate the important facts about what's going on. So what clues about judgment seat, the stone pavement, Gabbatha, should we be picking up? Well, Gabbatha is not the Hebrew for the stone pavement. John hasn't told us the same word through two different translations. It's a different name for the same location in Jerusalem the Hebrew name, Gabbatha, means raised platform. It's got a kind of a sense of of back and, and lifted a little. So stone pavement and something lifted. Okay, where else does a stone pavement, a seat, and a raised place appear in scripture, in the story of God's people that John could be pointing us to here? One of the most famous and important stories Of God's people throughout all history is when God arranged for Moses to meet with God at the top of Mount Sinai. This is a phenomenally important encounter and conversation. It's where Moses and God's people were given the Ten Commandments, the law. It's where he was given the instructions for the tabernacle, tent of meeting, which became the temple. And there's this incredible moment in this encounter where God invited Moses and the leaders of his people to meet with him, to spend time with him at the top of that mountain. We'll read in Exodus chapter 24, if Ben is feeling so kind. Oh, you're so good, pal. Thank you very much. This is what those leaders saw. In verse one of Exodus 24, God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship at a distance. And skipping down to verse nine, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone. Like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also, they beheld God and they ate and drank. This is an amazing bit of the Bible. God in his glory allows the leaders of his people to meet him, to be in his presence, and on top of this mountain is something like a stone pavement. Thanks, Ben. Looking ahead to the New Testament, John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote the book of what God revealed to him in visions, which we call the book of Revelation. And God showed, oh sorry, what God showed John included these two scenes of heaven. This is Revelation chapter four. Thanks Ben, I'm going to make you work again. And John sees in heaven. There in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like Jasper and Cornelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne room, sorry, around the throne are 24 thrones and seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. This is a glorious picture. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, raw power and glory. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And I'm going to skip to verse eight, just a couple of verses down that same passage uh, in Revelation four. What happens around the throne is that day and night without ceasing, they sing, holy, 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 the Lord God, the almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who's seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne singing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Thank you, Ben. This is a picture of the true throne room, where behind the murky curtain of this muddled world, God is given the glory he truly deserves. And in the midst of elders and mystical creatures bowing down and praising him, God sits on a throne, on a crystal sea of glass. So well actually there's another reference that i'll just tip you off to it's in revelation 15 2 which is another picture of a throne and, and a sea of glass with what mi- appears to be mixed with fire there's, there's more in there but we'll, we'll skip on okay so in john 19 in jesus's judgment by Pilate, we see a throne a raised place a pavement made of stones john is zooming in for a close-up to these details of Pilate's judgment seat to hint to us that what is really behind this sham trial is God's true judgment seat. There's a connection here that John is drawing for us to show us that in this terrible moment of Jesus's false judgment, God actually is present, in charge even, revealing the truth about the world's authorities and his supposed leaders. In these terrible judgments from the world's authorities and God's people's leaders, they themselves were actually on trial, being sifted. Their own choices were under scrutiny. The judges have actually judged themselves in the presence of God. In John chapter 3, Jesus met with one of the uh, leaders of his of God's people who was interested, who did see it. This is a man called Nicodemus, and there's a famous statement that Jesus gives in part of this discussion that you may well recognize. Jesus says, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life." Well, so far, so good on a placard. But Jesus keeps explaining, and a couple of verses down, we'll pick it up in verse 19, Jesus declares, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. But people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light, and do not come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Oh, sorry, <laughs> so that their deeds may not be exposed. That's correct. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Get those right, eh? Important. Thanks, Ben. This is the judgment. Jesus revealed God to the world and the world's reaction to him was a measure of their true relationship with God. This was the self-sifting, the moment of separation. This is the judgment. In my micro home group this week, which I really enjoyed by the way, my friend Lizzie made a really lovely observation. If you're meeting someone and someone rushes into an unfair, cruel judgment about you, actually that can give you a good sense that you might not actually like to be friends with that person anyway they sort of judge themselves by their very act of judging you. They reveal to you, you might not wanna spend time getting to know them as much as you might the person who didn't rush to an unfair premature judgment about you. In the case of Pilate and the leaders of God's people, the light of God's presence shone on them. A moment of crisis, of God's presence and of revelation brought out that their choices revealed that they preferred darkness. In Pilate's case, he dodges truth and integrity in order to people please, even when he has a spiritual notion that there's more at stake here. I think Pilate represents the whole world in this. The world's preference for power with no scruples, no truth, no justice. In God's leader's case, they chose their status over their saviour, their position over God's physical presence. It's a shocking betrayal. The very people who are tasked with carrying God's light into the world chose the things of the world over God himself stood before them. And in this moment, I believe that they unintentionally judged themselves and found themselves clinging to the darkness and avoiding the light. Deeply shameful. Heartbreaking. What about us this morning? What about you and I? Do we resonate with pilot slippery motives, with the unease of a divided heart of God's people. If you don't like the sound of judgment, the good news is, as I said, our judge is not distant or cruel, certainly not as cruel as we might be given the power, but our judge is fair and is willing us to be righteous. The bad news is that we often regularly still fail to live in right relationship with God, even when the way to do so has been spelled out for us so clearly. So often the selfish choice, the easy people-pleasy option, the power play, they all appeal to us, even when we know what God wants us to do, to stay close to him. So how do we avoid Pilate's error? How do we avoid ignoring God and obsessing with power? stuff and how do we avoid god's people's error missing him when he shows up how do we find his light warm and welcoming and something to bask in and delight in not fearsome and harsh when we encounter his presence and how do we sift ourselves to be sheep in matthew 25 terms not goats I have two practical solutions for us this morning, and they're not rocket science. Firstly, this whole trial scene that we've been reading about is part of God's master plan to provide an all mistakes forgiven route back to him. Jesus went through this whole painful process precisely to fulfil a plan that meant that you and I didn't have to stand before God ashamed or stand separated in self-imposed darkness. He bought for us the right to stand in his light, to bask in the peace and the joy of God's glorious presence for it to be a welcoming thing. Come Holy Spirit. Through the gift of his purity exchanged for our shame. In God's actual courtroom, the judge and his son have agreed that if only you will let him, the son will take your guilt and offer you his shining innocence, and a new life to experience it in. That is the scandal of Christianity. That Jesus's death and resurrection offer you and me a way to end our rebellions and to begin new transformed lives with God, sin-free, separation-free, delighting in light. Friends, if you've never made that exchange with God, It's not too late. You're not at that awkward moment in the conversation where you've been chatting too long and you've forgotten each other's names and you can't ask anymore. If you've never made that exchange with God, he offers it. And I suggest you speak to him and accept it right now. Lord, I want that. Can we restart? Secondly, We, God's forgiven people, if that's how you count yourself, we need to live in his light. We need to make sure that this gift of a relationship that he's given us isn't squandered, but that we invest in it. Not because God is needy in some way, but because the way that he has designed for us to be transformed as rescued children is precisely through spending delightful time with him. What a kindness. I might have invented some sort of boot camp. Ah, you're forgiven now, are you? Great, drop and give me 20. But no, God doesn't train ourselves to live rightly in front of him like a taskmaster with a stick. He offers us soul-fulfilling intimacy with him that itself transforms us into loving like he does. Just a, a quick note here, I promise. That stone pavement thing and those links, John highlighting for us the links that God has placed for us to find. I think that's really cool, I hope you do too. Have you ever noticed with a really good friendship with someone that at the very center of your friendship with them, there are some really important shared experiences like in-jokes and memories that a third person watching your friendship conversation would just not get. They'd completely miss out on because they don't have those shared reference points. They weren't there for that crucial moment. I suggest that with your friendship, you don't just have things that you can remember together, but you have a shared way of thinking built from those experiences. Your whole framework for that friendship is unique, built from those things you shared together. It allows you to make those jokes and references that you enjoy. When preachers say, pray and read your Bible, we can make it sound like a tick box exercise If you do both of those things, if you do them enough, and if you do them good enough, then you might be being a good Christian. But that's not it. If what we're really talking about is a real God and a real relationship with him, that you can actually get to know him personally, then I suggest spending time with him, talking about your day, talking about your worries, learning to listen to him, getting used to the sound of his voice, really making it a relationship and reading the book that he's written to you and me, a gift of a way of getting to know him, doing these things are not tick box exercises, but are quality time investments in a relationship. And they're more than stuff. This is is investing in shared memories. This is allowing what we read and what we hear from him to give us a shared point of reference a shared headspace, a shared way of thinking between us. That time that we spend praying and reading our Bible will do more than teach us stuff or facts, but it'll actually shape our way of thinking. Well, that's good news for a relationship, but God being who he is, shaping our way of thinking to be in line with him and having those shared references and in-jokes and treats, memes between you and the Lord, are themselves a transformative, even loving, healing process. I think that's very powerful myself, but I said it was a quicker night so I'll move on. Friends, for those of us who have accepted the universe's best offer of a relationship with God, I challenge us to prevent our hearts from hardening against him, to invest in that relationship. If you were hearing a sermon about judgment and expecting a list of do nots as the application at the end, then I'm sorry to disappoint you. I have some do's for us, positive things. Psalm 95 invites us and then warns us. And if Ben's good enough, I'm gonna ask him to drop off. The penultimate of our passages on the screen whilst also juggling the cavey kids' pictures. Come on, Ben. Go on, sir. God bless you, friend. Psalm 95, beginning at verse 6, invites us to come. Let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Oh, today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, says the Lord. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray. They've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Ben, could you go back to the previous one? I just want to point out, here's my do's for us, friends. Here's my suggestions to invest in that relationship. Let us bow down in worship. Let's spend time with him, loving him, giving him glory. Let us kneel before him. That means submission. That means admitting that we might have it wrong, actually, and the God who designed the universe and made it good might be right. We might need to submit to him that might need to be part of you accepting his offer. And if only we would listen to his voice. Thank you, Ben. These are relationship actions. Oh, let our hearts not be hardened. Let us not be a people who, instead of looking to get closer to the God who loves us, decide to try and test him. Let us not be a people who ignore his instructions to us and allow the distractions and destructions of dark desires to draw us out of his light. Let us not be a generation whose hearts have gone astray and have not known his ways. Last one, Ben. Instead, I urge us to pray. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart, To fear your name and you can leave that up for a second mate because i believe that through praying this through taking this seriously through separating ourselves into his presence sifting ourselves into accepting his offer of restoration and plowing our life into this relationship that he designed us for in the first place through his loving restoration of us and work in our hearts and our lives, we will find ourselves delighting in his presence, his light. Both on that day when we meet him face to face ourselves and every day between now and then too. Thank you, Ben. Let's pray, shall we? And uh, we'll have some time for response in a moment that Morag's going to lead us in, but I would love to give us just a little bit of space now. Maybe as I was speaking, the Lord said something to you. That's great. Would you bring healing where we need it? Would you come and meet those of us who really need your presence? Father, forgive us for tick box exercises or for um, going through the motions of a relationship with you and missing the relationship with you that you designed us for. When you shine your light on us, Lord, let it be a healing, a restoring, a delightful light. Please come, Holy Spirit, more. Increase your presence. Would you be working away deep within each of us? Whatever word, message, or whatever you want to say to each of us, I'm sure it will be different for everyone. Come have your way, Lord.
1: thanks to you thank you pal